Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1931 Fritz Lang masterpiece M. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Uh, I got to say this movie in 1931, they weren't thinking about search engine optimization. M is a hard thing to search for. <laughs> um, so you have to constantly, thankfully, Fritz Long is easy to spell. So it's like you can just type, you type in Fritz Long M, you get that. I also want to say, and you mentioned this at the end of the of our last episode, this movie is a great commercial for the Criterion channel. I watched just about all the extras they have. I, I don't usually have time to do that, but because I had seen this movie recently, I could watch it and still have time to to hit the extras on there. There's so much good stuff about this movie. Um, so a lot of what I'm what I'm going to be talking about is stuff that I, I gleaned from looking at that. But let's start with uh, with your history. What is your history with this film in particular, and maybe long generally? Yeah, this is one of those films, Sam. It's it's uh, in a way, it's a little bit like Citizen Kane and other films where I've just always sort of known about this film. So it's hard for me to say exactly when I first saw it. It would have been several years ago, many years ago, probably. Um, but I will say that it would not have been the pristine print that we now have. It's a film that has a very long and tangled history of restoration and loss and different versions of different times. But uh, I felt like I was seeing it for the first time, uh, re-watching it on that Criterion uh, version, because it's just, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I, I've got a pretty decent history with Fritz Lang. I've watched a number of his Hollywood films, uh, Scarlet Street, Woman in the Window, um, the Big Heat is uh, probably uh, one, of the, one of the best of his Hollywood films. But this is the film that he regarded as his, his masterpiece, which is interesting. This is also, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it was his first sound film uh, as well. And then, of course, before this, I have seen his Metropolis uh, in, in a couple different versions. Yeah, I first saw this movie, I think this past winter, my wife and I, for some reason, our kids were gone somewhere and we were flipping through Criterion and we both just saw that title and we're like, oh, I've heard of this. Like, I just say it was a movie I had heard of and she had heard of. So we watched it kind of not knowing at all what it was going to be about, other than we could see from the image Peter Laurie was in it. And we're like, oh, this this will be good. And uh, I was not ready for how dark the subject matter for this is and the different kind of multiple twists that Long puts on it. Like, it's... This movie, if you don't know what's going to happen, it it really, uh, he's definitely working on you. He's leading you in a direction, and then he's turning around and saying, well, what do you think about this? And then he does something else, and, and, and he's like, well, what do you think about this? Uh, and I, I, it's one of the better, we'll talk about genres with this movie, because I think it, it, it actually hits multiple genres, and some people argue creates some of these genres, mm -hmm. but... Um, if we're thinking about this as like a social issues movie, which it is, mm -hmm. um, I was not ready for the way he goes about raising those issues because I feel like he leads you down a path and then turns on you and says, okay, I've let you think this for a while, but now I want to ask you another question. And I, I think it's, this is a, this is a masterful piece of storytelling, I think, uh, you know, in terms of getting where he wants to go. And at the same time, 
there's an ambiguity to it as well. Um, you know, we can talk about the history of this with the Nazis that uh, I think Goebbels misread this film. <laughs> um, and so, so, so it was, a, it was sort of allowed a little for, uh, you know, maybe a little bit longer than, than it would have if, if, if he had read it differently. Um, if we think about Fritz Lang a little bit more, who was he in 1931 and like, what's indicative of him as a filmmaker? Cause I have to say, I mean, we 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 met him literally in last week's movie because he's in last week's movie, um, Contempt. But I'm I'm aware of Metropolis as a movie. I've never seen that. This is the first thing I've ever seen that that long made. Like, like what's in, what's indicative of a long film? Well, that's a that yeah, that's a, that that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that's indicative by a by a long, indicative of a long film uh, in terms of content. Uh, he worked in a lot of the, the darker, literally the darker genres, as I talked about. All the films that I mentioned of his are films noir. Um, and he himself said, I'm profoundly fascinated by cruelty, fear, horror, and death. Uh, and this is from his, uh, that's a quote from his New York Times obituary. Uh, and the, the writer on, went on to say that his world was populated largely by psychopaths, master criminals, prostitutes, cuckolds, child murderers, and sadists and the insane. So he's definitely interested, I would say, in um, abnormal psychology. And he's interested in the relationship between the, quote, normal in society and, and the abnormal. Uh, so he's really interested in investigating that. So that's, that's what I would say is true of him in terms of content. Uh, in terms of style, you know, when you think, when you look at M, it has uh, all the marks of uh, German expressionism, which we talked before, you know, lots of shadows, lots of low angles, lots of kind of subjective camera work suggesting a uh, somewhat distorted subjective uh, view of the world. And so when I think about the long films that I know, you know, they are almost always characterized by, by shadows that in a way kind of reinforce uh, reinforce the theme of the of, of the film. So, as you mentioned, um, and I think this is one of the interesting narrative pieces about about the, around this film is that this is his first sound film. So this is 1931, so he waits a while. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that we're we're a solid four years after the uh, the advent of talkies that that he finally does a sound film. So, and he's reluctant to do it. He doesn't want to do it. But what's interesting about it is once he does it, this is one of the best sounding films i can't believe by in 1931 i'm saying this is one of the best sounding films i've ever seen mm-hmm. and not only is it a movie that's great with sound it is a movie that's about sound like sound plays ma- a major role in terms of both form and content in this movie like if you think about it it's one of the driving pieces of how the the um the mystery gets solved for the people you know hunting the killer is is sound um but but formally there's a really great uh short so criterion has the i don't want to turn this whole thing into a criterion commercial but they have this great series where they take films and they they sort of teach about elements of film and mm-hmm. they for for one of them about sound one of their early videos in this they use this movie and they talk about these different techniques that he introduces um and they play such a huge role in how he constructs the film, but also how like um, how he tells a story with this. So one of them, and this is one that that jumps out at you, uh, is is off screen sound. Now I think a lot of this film, I mean, some of it he he shot with live sound because when you have Laurie giving his speech, you have actors talking like he's shooting that live. 
But I think a lot of the, I, I think I heard as much as like two thirds of this film was shot without sound because there's not dialogue. And then they basically built a sound design around it. Um, which is maybe why it sounds so good too, is like you, you have uh this was this this sound was created by people in a studio building building the soundscape. So off-screen sound, so many things are introduced sonically before you see them. So from a little thing like when uh early on in the movie when Elsie is gonna cross the street and you hear and it's kind of silent, it it has the quiet of a of a silent film and all of a sudden you hear a, a car coming and you hear it before you see it. And, you know, things like that to the introduction of, of Beckert where you hear his whistle. Um, and then eventually you see his shadow, you know? And so like, like sound off screen sound is pointing you to the fact that there are things beyond the frame. So it makes the world, the, the visual world seem larger because we're, we're hearing things we don't see. I have to mention just as a trivial uh, uh, point, uh, Sam, that Beckert's whistle is actually Long's whistle. Uh, Peter Lorre could not whistle, and so Long, Long, Long did that. Yeah, I, I, I love the, I love what you brought up about, about the use of sound because here he is in his first sound film actually kind of inventing things, including the idea of a musical leitmotif. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was really, as far as I know, he was the first film to do that. Um, the great French director whose films we haven't gotten to yet, but we will, Robert Bresson, uh, he once said that the soundtrack invented the idea of silence in films. And that, that is a wonderful point because if all you have is silence before talkies, then a silence is just a given. But once you can have the option to talk, then you have the option or have sound, then you have the option not to have. So it's as though silence can only be defined against the presence of sound. And I have to confess, the first time I saw this film, I thought something had gone wrong. When, when, the, when the police raid starts happening, when the raid starts happening and there's no sound, I thought, oh no, what, what, what happened? This must be a kind of a technical malfunction um, because it's so contrary to, um, to the practice that we, you know, we're, we're not, once a film has sound, we're used to something happening. And there's also a way in which when this film is silent, it's different from silence in most sound films. Even when most sound films are silent, I don't know why this is, but you are aware of a soundtrack that nothing is on. Whereas when this film goes silent, it's as though the soundtrack has just disappeared. It's almost as though somebody's pushed the mute button. Um, and that really then heightens, you know, Lonning's intention here is that really heightens the next sound you hear, if it, whether it's a police whistle or a car or whatever it is, that sound suddenly becomes kind of, uh, it, it has a focus on it that you wouldn't have otherwise. So it's really, really effective. I think that is because, I mean, my guess is that there is a difference between literally having no sound and having ambient silence because 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 what we what he's showing us and and there's another spot where he shows us this that's kind of amazing in this film what he's showing us is that what we think of as silence isn't really silence that like (laughs) if if you and i were to stop talking we'd be like oh it's silent but there is all of this (laughs) the, the world around us has this ambient sound and there another thing that he does is he he has this moment and then again, he's playing with sound of of subjective sound too. Where when they first crank up the um, uh, the 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 crank organ that you play on the street, and you have the guy, the old man, covering his ears, and then the soundtrack <laughs> drops out and comes back in. Uh, and so so he is in his first silent film playing with the idea of like, okay, well, 
is sound something objective that is coming from the outside or is it something that each person is experiencing differently uh, and it made me think of of in contempt where godard is saying like let's think about the soundtrack we can do different things with this we can pull it up and not. so so it, it, like it it's fascinating to me and i think this is a this is a, an example of lots of people were were starting to make sound films but this is when you get a a genius filmmaker saying, okay, I'm going to do this, but like, I'm not just doing sound because it sounds like I'm only going to do it if there's a reason for this to be there. So, so that's so amazing. It's interesting that you mentioned silence too, because that's actually one of the four sound techniques they talked about on this. They said silence is a technique that he uses and it is, and it, it does heighten those moments. I mean, at first it's because you notice them, you notice like, why, why am I seeing something that should be loud and it's not? Well, the other other thing I want to say, too, about that scene with the guy covering his ears is because the sound is um, off camera again, it's almost as though he's playing with is this is this diegetic or is it non-diegetic? Right. Because usually when there's off camera sound like that, you think it's you tend to think it's non-diegetic. And so I just so it's almost as though diegetically he's cutting off non-diegetic sound. I, it's amazingly sophisticated for a, a first sound film. Yeah, and it's and like that one is also like, and it's weird to say this in this movie, like it's kind of a joke too. Yeah, <laughs> like is. you know, like so so he's he's he, he's doing that. Another thing that he uses, which is is really cool, is sound bridges. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear, and and this is something very common now. You'll hear. A, you'll be watching something, you'll hear a sound, think it's in the scene you're looking at, and it's actually a bridge to the next scene. So the, a great example of this is when they have the um, reward posted for the killer and all the people are crowding up and somebody says, read it, read it, and you hear a voice start to read it. Mm-hmm. You assume it's the person underneath the poster reading it, but then we cut with the sound unbroken, we cut to these men sitting at a table and one of them is reading and you realize, well, that's actually the person who's reading. So he he uses sound in transitional ways as a literal bridge like that. But then he also will do, um, uh, and this is where we get into sort of comparisons that he's making where a sentence will start in one scene and end in another with, you know, to, to show like these same conversations are happening in these two different places. So, you know, this, especially when he's talking about sort of the crime element and the police that he'll bridge between those with, um, with sentences that start in one scene in one location and end in another. Uh, Again, that's just brilliant. And when you watch it, you're just like, if somebody hadn't done this before, why hadn't they, this is a brilliant idea. Well, I I think also, Sam, this is why talking about films like this in in a kind of historical context is really important because the sound bridges you're describing um, are, they're they're very common now. I mean, we kind of of expect that. It's become part of our film grammar. Um, And and it reminds me of reading a student response once to, I think it was uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. uh, And the student kind of complained that it was just derivative of all kinds of rom-coms. And... (laughs) And I, and I wanted to say, um, no, no, these rom-coms are based on what Jane Austen was doing, you know, and so it's like, or, you know, it, it seems cliche. So I think in a way, you know, we need to kind of be able to look at a film like him with those fresh eyes and say, you know, this may not strike you as remarkable because you see it all the time or hear it all the time, but that's because he did this uh, so many years ago. Right. And then the other technique is, is the, this movie has a lot of voiceover as well, especially as we're getting into the procedural elements, we're getting 
having one conversation or a person talking and we're listening to them. And then we realize he keeps cutting to these other things, which are sometimes showing the things. And then that will then bridge into somebody who's actually talking in a scene. Um, yeah, I mean, this, it, it's sort of, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure there are other things between 27 and 31 where people are doing really inventive stuff with sound, but this, this must have blown people away who were paying attention to that stuff, at least, at least it must have blown filmmakers away to realize, oh, you can do that and you can do that. Well, the, and, and probably the most famous set piece, um, one of the most famous LL aspects of the film would be the cross cutting, both, both with sound and image between the conference among the, uh, the underworld leaders and the, and the police. And of course it's obvious, but it's still worth saying it, it then becomes a wonderful thematic commentary in which you can either, in which you can either try to think about is Long making them equivalent or is Long asking us to make a distinction, which of course foreshadows the end of the film where we have the argument over who makes the decision about, about capital punishment. Mm -hmm. But it's also a scene that makes me think of uh, uh, one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite novels in uh, Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent. Uh, they're talking about the police versus the spies and one of the characters calls them counters in the same game. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, that, and that to me is exactly what Long is doing here. And that is that there is a game going on here. And part of the reason why the murderer is such a challenge to society is because he breaks the rules. It's like the, the, under, the, the folks from the underworld, they follow a certain code and the police follow a certain code. And this is the way you, this is the way you do a crime. This is sort of the rules of war. And this guy is just completely breaking those, those rules. So even within a society, you have sub-societies that are acceptable, but he's outside all of those, all of those possible societies. Yes. Uh, one other interesting thing that I found about sound, and this there's a, a different criterion thing about, um, the, it's called the physical history of, of them. I don't know if you watch this, but yeah. the actual shape of the, the physical shape of the movie on the screen is affected by the soundtrack as well. Because that was one of the things when I fired this up, I was like, I don't, something doesn't seem right. Because I was watching it on my projector, so I kept trying to adjust it. It's like, the shape of the screen doesn't feel right. And it's an aspect ratio you're not used to because right. the soundtrack is added to that. So, so the sound is even, is even, um, even shaping that. Um, now, another thing we talked about uh, content in the movie. So, so we talked about the, the role of the sort of light motif of the hall of the mountain King. Um, uh, do you know anything about that piece of music? Does no, it have, because what I was wondering is like, it, it, it has such like, it's such a perfect little tune for mm. to have these sinister connotations. And I didn't get a chance to go back and look like what the origins of this are in terms of, does it in its original context, does it have those same mm. sinister connotations or is this another joke where he's taking this like, you know, jaunty tune and turning it into the symbol that danger is coming in this movie. And whenever it, once you realize that whenever you hear it, like I, I physically like I tense up because I think, okay, I don't, I need to be ready for something that's going to happen. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just expose my great uh, ignorance, Sam, of both the musical *Pure Gint, Gint Suite* and the Ibsen play. So I, I can offer no kind, no right. background whatsoever. Well, that's on me too. I could have looked that up as well. <laughs> but I also, I think, you know, to the point of sound, like it's the whistling that ends up IDing Beckert, mm -hmm. and it's notable that it is a blind man that IDs him too. It is. 
somebody who who cannot see him but the walking by and hearing it and then that triggers and then we have that great moment of the the blind man who can hear it and the sighted person who can see him and they're they're teaming up and and it to the extent that that is an image of what this movie is right it is it is sight and sound actually working together to tell a story i just thought that was kind of a that's yeah. such a cool moment in the movie yeah it's one of, it's one of many ironies right the uh the the uh, including the irony that that deckard is hoping for the police right <laughs> you know, the police will be will will re- will rescue him so 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 as i said this movie has has multiple genres um i mean the 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 first one that that it introduces is this uh the the serial killer movie mm-hmm. and i i think this is pretty close to the beginning i mean everything i read like people were saying well you could make the case about x y or z but really they're not but this one this one actually seems to to really be the 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 origin story in terms of film at least for what you would think of as a pretty pure serial killer storyline well I'll, I'll, I'll cite a film i haven't seen but i've read about sam and that would be hitchcock's the lodger which I think was 27. I think maybe it was Hitchcock's last silent film. And that, that does have a, I, I, that does have a kind of a serial killer in it, but I think you're right. I think in terms of the kind of focus that a killer gets in this film and the way that, the way that he raises so many of those social issues we've, we've kind of hinted at that is unique. Um, D when I think about this genre, it's not, so, it's not like my most favorite thing, but I, I realize there are three movies I really love that, that, that fit in with this. And it was interesting watching this and seeing parallels to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, 1991 silence of the lambs, which we have talked about on this podcast, uh, Hitchcock psycho. Mm-hmm. And then the 2007 Fincher film Zodiac, which is one of my absolute mm-hmm. favorites. Um, and I was amazed watching this, how much of, elements of silence of the lambs and elements of zodiac i could see in this movie and and you just um you know partially it is about uh, serial killer things that um overlap but also things that the filmmakers do one of the things that i love that i wonder how much um demi is thinking about uh thinking about m uh, one of the other visual techniques that that long uses that demi then uses in silence of the lambs is these intense moments where characters address camera when they're arguing with each other and we snap from uh a, a wide shot where we're seeing people argue to like think about those men around the table when they start accusing each other it is now uh a, a shot of them addressing camera and that's a that's something demi uses mm-hmm. um, he uses it in multiple films but he uses it particularly effectively in uh in silence of the lamb so, so even as like a filmmaking technique it's like oh wow that's I can I can see Demi in that. The uh, the other serial killer I'll mention who kind of baffles the authorities because of the way he breaks the rules would be you know, No Country for Old Men. Oh yes, I think I'd have to throw that one in there as well. Yeah, and then so and then we you know I was amazed to think about a 1931 movie where we're looking at like we're getting into the psychology and like the profiling that also has a little Silence of the Lamb feel where you're I think it's the handwriting expert who is <laughs> talking about like you know, kind of the, uh, the reasons for, or sort of like psychologically who this person must be because of this. Um, and what's interesting about this movie is we don't get long. Doesn't do too much to explain why Beckert is the way he is. Um, although in the pre-production of this, 
long had ideas about that that ended up not making it into the movie. So um, one of the things that interested me as I as I dove into this more is that he is thinking about um, uh, this as a post World War One movie. Um, and he actually had thought at one point of having a cutback, a flashback to uh, Beckert in the trenches, you know, saying like, well, there is this trauma of this mass killing that our society has was took part in, you know, uh, less than 15 years ago. And it's like there there is an effect of that. And we see that also in the kind of characters of the um, the beggars union. I mean, you see the guy with the wooden leg, which. I mean, I assume is a war injury and, you know, and, and some of those things. So there is, there is, the movie doesn't explicitly do that, but you can't help but think about Germany 1931 and think, well, that's the legacy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and for, yeah, Freudian psychology did become, did become kind of a rage for films in the thirties, forties and fifties. And, and so I think, uh, you know, when you get it in a film like uh, Hitchcock's psycho, um, which, which I read it as, as ironic at the end of Psycho, where the, uh, the Simon Oakland plays the doctor who he thinks he's got Norman Bates all figured out. It turns out he really doesn't, doesn't understand what's happened at all. So I, so I think it's interesting that the whole um, Freudian, Freudianization, if I can call it that, it kind of takes this arc. And I think that it strengthens the film um, that we don't have an origin story for the psychosis. Um, uh, and it reminds me of a very, very different film that eschewed an origin story, which was one of the first film we ever watched, which was Groundhog Day, mm. uh, which also had an explanation of what was happening to the Bill Murray character, and they took that out. And so I think that's, that's uh, it's, all, it's also, I think, thematically significant that Long takes it out because um, it, it, it's part of the debate at the end about what do we do with this, with this person. Um, and, and there's a debate over the legitimacy of even treating such a person psychologically. So I think that Long doesn't want to undercut that by giving a simple kind of kind of origin story. Well, and, it'll, yeah, and it allows it to pull this out of a specific time period as well. And because there are other other moments where we see this sort of um, interest or obsession. So I, I, again, another thing I found really interesting um, was the scene where Beckert is writing a letter to the press and saying like, well, the police have ignored this, ignored my first letter. So now I'm going to write to the press, which is, I mean, that is what the Zodiac killer does. Yes. And that's, and, and, and that I means Zodiac is more of a newspaper movie than it is a serial killer mm -hmm. movie. Um, but it leads to this kind of mass hysteria. Like there's this, the great scene where the, the little girl walks up to the, the kind of tiny old man in glasses and asks for the time. And then the big hulking security guard or police officer goes up to him and you get those great POV shots both ways of looking up and looking down. But that, that turns into a mob ready to uh, ready to probably kill this guy. And Ebert has a great line about, about that scene where he says like all of those people as individuals, you know, are, are probably logical, rational people. But when you get them together, the sort of mentality of the mob kind of takes over. And Ebert is saying like, it's not a mistake that two years later we have, you know, Nazi control in Germany, that, that there is this sense of like long is prof is prophetic in where what's starting to happen in Germany in the late twenties, early thirties. Um, I, I feel like that scene is pointing to that. And so many of these movies are, uh, they know it's like they, it's like they know what's happening or it turns out to be very prophetic one or the other. 
Well, and, 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 it, and it does turn the film into a kind of an allegory as, as a result. And, you know, the film originally, when it attract, attracted the attention of the, the, of the censors, when it was originally called Murderers Among Us, right? And you said earlier, you think Goebbels misread this film. I mean, I, I think it's very interesting to me that when they, when they see that the title is Murderers Among Us, they think, oh my gosh, that might be a film about Nazis. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, it's a problem if you hear that and think that's us. <laughs> and, and then Lang says, oh no, it's just going to be called M. And then they're like, oh, okay, we're, we're okay with that. But it's the same story. And, and, and they couldn't see that as, uh, as, as a potential uh, critique of, of what Nazism was about. But I think your point, the one that Ibra makes, is a really, really important point. And that is that um, if, we, if we want to hold this person accountable for saying, despite the fact that he says, I can't control myself, then why would we not, on the one hand, why would we not hold the mobs accountable for not being able to control themselves? And secondly, if we really believe people can control themselves, then the mob should have been able to control themselves. So is it the mob that's actually as sick as the murderer, or is the murderer simply a, um, a heightened version of what a mob is? Um, and, and he doesn't allow you, there's no simple answer to those questions. That's, to me, that's the other brilliant thing about this film is it, is it engages you in a debate without telling you what the right answer is. Yeah. Another interesting thing that, that the, the commentary pointed out that I didn't pick up on is uh, when Elsie's mother is waiting for her to come home at the very beginning of the film. And the, there's a man who comes to the door and yeah. drops off a, uh, some kind of publication and I didn't realize what it was, but they, but, but it was a, it's like a serial magazine, kind of like a sensational stories kind of serial. And, mm -hmm. and he's talking about like, this is a society that is, you know, kind of obsessed with these types of things. And it's like, and she's about to then actually live that out with her daughter. And so, so he's sort of pointing to like, are these things just here in our society and why is it entertainment here? And here, here it is this tragedy. And like, should we be okay with, with it as entertainment, which is also questioning, you know, when you're thinking about the movie that you're watching, right? Is this a piece of entertainment? Is this something else? And he, obviously it is something else for him. Yes. Yes. Uh, so another genre that this is, and, and, and I is uh, is a police procedural, and mm -hmm. I and I feel the same way when I watched White Heat, where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I'm so in, I'm so impressed by how in the weeds the filmmakers got in terms of police work because the the caricature of like, you know, pre DNA police work is sort of like, well, you just have a hunch and you go find, <laughs> but it's like, but you're watching them do all of these things, so you're watching them collect evidence and like the candy wrapper thing is so interesting. And then you see the map and the map, they have the compass on the map and they're like talking about, here are the things we're doing. We're looking at that big projection of the fingerprints and, you know, and it looks, it looks so scientific what they're doing. You have the handwriting expert um, and, you know, and all of those things. And it's like, that was really fascinating for me. And then he does the twist. And this is the first twist in the movie where again, it's, you could, this could be a joke, the criminal underworld thing because because the way that scene starts you have some characters who read as a little shady and they keep talking about waiting for the safe cracker so i was like why is there a heist movie in the middle of this like i thought well this is this is a getting the team together thing and then you realize these are the uh the kind of leaders of the unions of different criminal element like i'm not it it almost read like and I mean this in a positive way, like a scene out of the Adam West Batman where like, we're getting all the supervillains together yes. to make a plan. <laughs> yeah. um, but then you realize that, that their, their way of life is threatened by this. 
Um, and they have their own procedural methods. And this is where you get the beggars union and you have their, you, and not only do you see the police procedure, you see their procedure and their procedure is pretty solid, right? They have eyes and ears all over the place. They have, they're getting people signed up to cover different blocks to, to watch for this. And it's like, you get that doubling and it, 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 it starts to ask you all kinds of questions about like, what does the doubling mean? And, and you, you're sort of getting at this, right? And it also connects a little bit with uh, with the Godfather uh, in that, you know, you uh, they are the this is the German version of the mafia. Uh, and they're like, you know, we we commit civilized crimes, mm-hmm. like, just like in the Godfather. We don't do drugs. We, we, we don't get in. That's dirty stuff. We don't do that. And these folks are like, you know, we don't we don't we don't endorse or tolerate child murderers. And it's like the it's like the. Um, uh, the woman in the uh, in in the the club that they raid, you know, she talks about how you know how they the the women may be prostitutes, but they have the hearts of mothers. So it's 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 all part of kind of saying there is <laughs> there's an acceptable way to be a criminal, and there is an unacceptable way to be a criminal. One phrase I kept writing in my notes as I was writing questions, um, and 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 I think this is a, a theme that he's asking about is like, what is legitimate authority? Mm-hmm. Um, because like you find yourself, I, I find myself like, am I rooting for who am I rooting for here? Am I rooting for the police to catch this guy? But if the, especially early on in the movies, like if the criminals catch this guy, well, they're still catching a child murder. The fact that he makes it a child murderer is so important because it's like, I mean, I've heard about sort of hierarchies in, in prisons oh. of like, you know, like what are the crimes where, if you do this, even within prison, you're going to be ostracized. And like child murder and 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 pedophilia are like the two top yeah. ones. Is like so it's like he he goes right to the mountaintop to be like, I'm gonna make this guy do the most horrific thing. But then you're 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 stuck with like, okay, am I rooting for these this criminal element to catch this guy? And is there a difference whether the police catch him or they do? Now he gets into I didn't expect him to get into that, but he gets into that. Um and, you know, it's hard not to think about, again, you, to think about the Nazis when you watch that crackdown at the nightclub. But then you're also thinking, but the police are a legitimate authority, so I guess I'm rooting for them. But then when they're going through everybody's papers, I feel like I'm watching Casablanca and it's like, OK, well, it, it, how do I feel about how do I feel about this? And it, and then you and then he does those great shots of like all of the um Lang must be obsessed with like the materials of crime. When you mm. get that table of like, here are all the tools that they found on people in this nightclub. It's like guns and drills and all this stuff. And you're just like, yeah, that that's such a such a powerful moment because Lang is building to um, whose whose side are you on and how do you feel about what is a legitimate authority? And you don't realize it, but he's building to a question he want to ask. He wants to ask you at the, in the end about legitimate authority, but you're caught up in the movie that I didn't see that question coming the first time I watched it. And it, it also makes the, the, the final or the penultimate scene with, uh, with Beckert making his plea kind of directly to the camera. It makes you realize that that's what Lang's been leading up to that is that you are, Ultimately, you are the person who has to make the, the, the decision about this. So it becomes a very personal thing. Yeah, no, I, I when I was thinking about that, so so there, there, that's the ultimate turn that this movie makes. So we have this manhunt scene, and he shoots Beckert like a trapped animal, mm-hmm. 
And I, I got to say the most gene, one of the, in a movie that is genius. One of the most genius things is casting Peter Laurie yes. now. And he's, this is a, his first big film role, I think. Right. Yeah. Is what it seems like. And there is something about him physically. There's something about uh, his like, chubby little fingers writing that um mm-hmm. writing that note and his face is very like soft and childlike in a kind of way and when he's looking in the mirror like adjusting his face um he you can't help but see him as a trapped animal in that building and it's like you have to keep reminding yourself like this is a child murderer but it's yeah. also like i'm worried for him and and and, and like Long does such a great job of making you wrestle with this because to your point, when you get to that, the kangaroo court trial, he's really going to turn on you. I mean, it it felt like in contempt at the very beginning scene, when the camera turns on you and you realize this movie is looking at you as well. And, and from that point on the movie stares you down and says, okay, you thought you were watching a movie about this. This is actually a movie about what is a human being? what does it what does what do human beings um deserve from other human beings mm-hmm. does anybody have the right to take another person's life even in something like this what is the if so what is the legitimate authority to do that do does this kangaroo court made me think of the oxbow incident where again you have these vigilantes who um they think they're in the right in this case long goes a step further and says they actually are in the right like this is not a question about whether he's guilty or not it's a question about what compels him to do this and ultimately do you have the right to take his life and when you get to the very end does it even matter if you do yeah i mean that is that is a much much harder question about justice than I'm glad you referred to the Oxbow incident because that's that's pretty simple compared to this, right? That's just about justice miscarried. Uh, but the assumption is that the justice that they were meeting out would have been the right thing to do if it had been the right people. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, as you're saying, Stan, this is this is more about what in the world. I mean, it's it's very it's very platonic, right? What in the world is justice? I mean, that, that's really that's really what he's asking. And and maybe you're left thinking, I'm not sure there. I, I'm not sure I have an answer. Is it, is it just to let him live and maybe put him in an asylum? Is it just to kill him? I, it, it's, 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 he's truly up against a mystery where society is going to have to make a choice, but maybe the problem is there isn't a single right choice. Um, and people will weigh in from different perspectives. You know, there could be a religious perspective, there could be a psychological perspective, there could be a political perspective. But those are all different perspectives on what is still a really hard question. Yeah, and 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 you know, you have this moment at the at the end of that trial where you feel like it's going to go in a particular direction. Then you have the police show up, and you don't see the police; you just see a hand come onto his shoulder. Yeah, and. I mean, this is how great Long is. And then he, even in that moment, makes what is a very funny joke when everybody just raises their hand, just puts their hands up. Yes. And eventually the safe cracker does too. And you're just like, this is such a serious movie about the most serious topic. It's so dark. And he's like, it would be funny if they did that, right? Like he has to think that's funny, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so, so you get that. And then you cut to the legitimate authority. Yeah. You know, like, like what, and, and you see them come and then he does the brilliant move of, we don't see what they decide. 
we just see them come in and then like uh like the camera in contempt it the camera just turns on you and says uh well you know cuts to the cuts to the three mothers and Mm. they say this won't bring our children back so he's saying okay let's say that let's say that uh that you're in favor of executing him and you know, I don't begrudge anybody who says that that's what you should do with a child. Like, I don't know what to do with this, but it is, but it, the mother is true. It's like, this might be justice. We can maybe define it that way, but it doesn't solve the fact that our children are gone. Right. And then, and then it gets to, so then you get this line about vigilance, right? About like, mm-hmm. like we have a responsibility and you have a response. I mean, they had, they had, at that moment, he addresses you or they, those actresses address you and say, you have a responsibility for this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what are you going to do? So it ends up like, it's so, it's so interesting to think about where the movie starts and it's kind of interesting and dark and exciting in a kind of way. And then he goes on all these twists and turns. And ultimately it is this, he wants to ask you these, this other set of questions that, I did not see come. I mean, I was so blown away when I got to that point. And then the fact that it just hard ends there and you're left to think like, Oh, he asked me a question kind of like a good teacher does. I always tell my tutors this when, when you're um, when you're working with somebody, when you're teaching and tutoring, when you ask a question, the, the most important thing is to let silence be a member of the group. And like, instead of jumping in and trying to like, massage the question or answer it for them just leave it there and long literally let silence be a member of be be a part of the movie again and just says like i'm gonna say this to you and then i'm gonna stop talking and the lights are gonna come up and you gotta live with it you gotta think about this uh i don't know that i've felt a movie end like that before uh and it's it's such like a convicting gut punch of like okay like, I guess I need to think about the questions he asked. Like, he's not giving me an out. He's not giving me a, here's the question. And, okay, let me try to push you towards the answer. Because, um, I mean, this is this is the, the misunderstanding that Goebbels had as he watched this and said, this is a movie, this is a pro-capital punishment movie. Right, right. And, uh, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's not what this is. But it doesn't necessarily tell you that it's not. It, it I mean, it could be about, you have to do that through proper authority. So like it's, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually that's, that's a really good point, Sam, because that's ultimately um, uh, I watched AO Scott did a little video review of the film on uh, New York Times in the New York times. And he says that the, that the, the resolution, if you want to call it, that is the rule of law. Now we don't know which way the rule of law is gone. You know, the rule of law could have said, we're putting him in asylum. The rule of law could have said, we're putting him to death. But either way, and it doesn't solve some of the fundamental philosophical issues you've been raising, but it does offer a kind of answer, which is we are not going to uh, endorse the rule, uh, the rule by criminals, which, of course, of course are the Nazis. Uh, but we are going to we are going to uh, endorse the rule of law. Uh, and the law is not perfect, uh, but at least the law has rules that it follows. And hopefully when it works well, it, it treats people equally. Right. And then the the uh i don't know what to call this the sort of universal irony of this is that you do have the nazis rise to 
legitimate authority. I mean, they win yeah. elections. And so like, so they, they become the legitimate authority and the, the big irony to this. And I I've spent um, this past summer, I was in Germany, I was in Berlin um, and they have a new memorial, relatively new memorial in Berlin to the people who were in mental institutions and asylums who were executed by the Nazis as undesirable elements in there. So it's interesting to think like, sure. In 1931, it might be, Oh, this guy, we're not going to kill him. We're going to send him off to an asylum by 1933. He's getting executed by the legitimate authority for being in the asylum. Like there is this, like, again, long can't know that, but that's, I watched this movie and thought, Oh, that's another like, like cosmic I was going to say joke. That's not it, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's like that is, that's, that's a, a, a reality you have to think about outside of this movie is the, the mob becomes the legitimate authority and they end up, would it, if he goes to an asylum, they end up getting meeting out their revenge anyhow on him and everyone else around him. You know, Sam, before we started Phil, uh, recording this morning, you and I were talking briefly about watching Stagecoach uh, tomorrow. Um, and in Stagecoach, the beginning of the film, you see the Ladies of the Law and Order League. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, to me, that's a perfect example of how law and order can actually be uh, can become the face of misrule, uh, and it can appear to legitimize itself. So, just to, so I understand that an appeal to law is not necessarily an appeal to the appropriate that everybody has that legal authority isn't necessarily following the dictates of what a true legal system is supposed to do. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing, actually, I'll, I'll, I'm going to turn things over to you. Do you have things you want to, I have a couple other little items, but do you have anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I have just two quick things. One is I also wanted to point out um, since we talked about uh, Long's camera in this film, there's a wonderful long tracking shot when they're in this in, in the, in the camera, in the sandwich shop. Um, and I, it reminds me of, of a Scorsese tracking shot in something like Goodfellas. I, I, and again, I just think it's a miracle because in 1931, you've got very heavy cameras. It's really hard to do the, that kind of, and, and what impressed me about this tracking shot is that it's so sinuous. I, I, I didn't feel like we were on a track. I felt like it was almost as though he'd invented a steady cam, which I'm sure he didn't. But anyway, that's, that's marvelous. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the way that, um, Peter Laurie's character isn't on screen a lot. And when you do see him, you see him initially in profile. You see him making those grotesque faces in the mirror as, as if he's trying to convince himself, I am, a, I am the monster other people see. And then you see him before he commits the murder um, and he's looking in the window. Uh, and then he goes and gets the cognac. You can see you know, you have seen dramatized what he is say, says at the end that he's really fighting this impulse, and you see that he's really kind of helpless to, to do that. And the other key thing I would say, which it's not just because it's 1931 and censors wouldn't allow it, but the fact that we don't see what he does to any of his victims. It's hinted at with the knife when he's cutting the orange. Um, some other character says at one point, well, you know the condition the bodies were found in when they find the bodies. And Long leaves it up to you to imagine what he's doing, which is a much more powerful engagement of the imagination. I want to, I want to point out two other things. Like uh, I am a very interested in kind of uh, art of the Weimar, late Weimar Republic. Um, and especially people like uh, George Gross and Max mm-hmm. Beckman. And uh, in the commentaries, they were pointing out how in line with 
some of the, those painters long is in terms of the even the faces that he chooses you know mm. that that you think about um, that that you know they're often talking about sort of grotesques and um excesses in late weimar germany and things like that and and you see that in in some of his casting in this movie um another thing that we didn't mention that i think is also brilliant in this movie is the way it opens with mm-hmm. these children playing yes. uh, playing a game and they they look like they're having fun and you listen to what they're saying and they're playing the kind of game we probably played as kids that has like this really dark undercurrent to it it's about like the killer coming for you and you they're in a circle and she's going around the circle like a clock ticking and this movie has lots of images of clocks so we get this clock at the beginning and you get somebody pulled out of the circle and in the commentary they talked about how often in this movie you see circles with something miss with a piece missing mm-hmm. you know when they're sitting around that 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 table the men reading the newspaper and arguing they're at a round table but there's one empty chair there and that this that that is a visual motif throughout this as well but i think that opening is so great because just like the serialized magazine pointing to like we are a violent culture like and and it's like even the children in the games that they play it's just embedded from the very beginning and i i just think that's such a such a great like dark opening to this movie yeah all right uh barrett uh what do you have for us for next week well uh i'll I'll just remind our listeners uh sam that i'm currently uh playing off of contempt and so uh one thing we played off of contempt was fritz long's i am which we just discussed um the other uh the other uh, director who gets mentioned in contempt is nicholas ray uh, and specifically uh, his film Bigger Than Life, which unfortunately is not readily available. Uh, but what we will do is watch another one of my favorite Nick Ray films, which is uh, In a Lonely Place. I've alluded to that a couple times. And as I started thinking about In a Lonely Place, there actually are some connections that we can make between that film and Contempt, both in terms of the theme uh, and in terms of the conditions of filming. Uh, so that's uh, Humphrey Bogart and, and Gloria Graham. Uh, from 1950, uh, one of Ray's uh, great films. Oh, fantastic! I have, I have, I've heard of this movie passingly, obviously, but uh, but I don't know anything about this, which is a, a great setup to uh, a fun week of movie watching. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for for recommending this film, for having this conversation, for recommending the Criterion Channel. We'll just throw it out one more time. Like, it's not that much money, and there's so much great stuff on there. Um, I feel like it, I feel like that really helped bring this movie to life in ways that I could not have done uh, otherwise. So um, so thank you so much for all of that. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about In a Lonely Place in the video store. Mm-hmm.